Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Encouragement Expert Podcast. We're glad you joined us today. Let's join Pastor Wes Doffenbaugh as he speaks on the fellowship of his suffering. Praise the Lord. It's a true delight to be with you today. I love every one of you. God bless you in Jesus' name. I have a good message. I, I always like to ask the Lord to anoint it. So let's say a quick prayer. Father, um, our quick prayer is a sincere prayer. We pray that you will be the teacher and that you will uh, just wash over us in your word and uh, and uh, communicate wonderfully to us through your word. We vow to give you the glory. Surround us all with warrior angels so nothing can hinder and then put ministering angels beside us to help us receive and retain your word. Coach us, Lord, in the applications. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the message is called this fellowship of his sufferings, and we're talking about the sufferings of Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote, Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 through 11 in the New King James Version. Now, one morning in my devotions, by the way, I learned to go to bed at 9 and then wake up at 5 and have some great times with the Lord. If I go to bed at 8, I wake up at 4 after 8 hours of sleep. So it's a great idea to uh, go to bed a little earlier so you can just wake up early and have quiet time with God. Anyway, in one of those quiet times, I felt the beam of the Holy Spirit just beam into me and illuminate this phrase, the fellowship of his sufferings. And the Holy Spirit made me to know that we can suffer for Christ and not be in the fellowship of his sufferings. Because, you see, if we suffer with Christ or for Christ, then the true fellowship comes when we have the thoughts of Christ in that suffering, the attitude of Christ and the reactions of Christ in that suffering. And I realized that we can suffer for Christ and be fellowshipping with the devil simultaneously. This is because if we're getting persecuted, we're suffering for Christ, but then if we complain about it, resent it, feel sorry for ourselves, want to pay back those who cause us pain and insult them back, then we're actually fellowshipping with the devil while suffering for Christ. <laughs> Now, my first point, that's a pretty good introduction, by the way. Now, my first point is fellowship with Christ is everything. Whatever we may lose as we draw near to God through Christ Jesus is nothing in comparison with oneness with God through Christ. And the goal of our spiritual quest is not just to miss hell and gain eternity in heaven. The real goal is to be so conformed to the image of Christ that we become one with Him. And Jesus said, it's a beautiful verse. You should make this a memory verse. I have made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now he's talking to the Father. That's John 17, 26. <clears throat> Jesus manifests these covenant names of God like Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Shammah. 
uh, and uh, he, he manifests them experientially to us so that we feel and experience his love as our shepherd, our provider, our healer, and so on. But the goal is to be turned into divine love. And Jesus wants the love that the Father has for him to be in us. Now, that would be infinite love. That's a wow. God wants us to abide in Christ so that everything we think and say and all our attitudes and perspectives, all our responses and what we're trying to achieve and do is all what Jesus would think, say, and do. And in this way, we fellowship with him constantly and not even suffering or persecution can break this true fellowship apart. Now, one definition of fellowship with the Spirit, that's what Paul said, if, there, if there's any fellowship with the Spirit in Philippians 2.1. Well, uh, years ago, God gave me a definition of fellowship as, quote, time together pursuing the same interests, unquote. So a husband and a wife have fellowship when they spend time together pursuing the same interests. All right, uh, fellowship is made of two things, spending time together, Number two, pursuing the same interest in that together time. And this is why Paul wrote, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Philippians 2, 3 through 5. So, if you're going to fellowship with somebody, you've got to show interest in their interests. Now, when we fellowship with Christ or with the Holy Spirit, we spend time together pursuing the same interests. And this fellowship is so wonderful, so sweet, fulfilling, satisfying, comforting, and meaningful that it is well worth leaving behind every selfish interest, every selfish pursuit of our own desires that have nothing to do with what God wants to be doing together with us. Now, God has invited us into his own heart. His heart's full of love for people. Fellowship with Christ, you know, is impossible without death to self or death to selfishness. He's always interested in bringing glory to the Father, always interested in truth and, and love to the lost, comfort to the suffering, hope to the hopeless, healing to the hurting, and reconciliation and unity to the divided it's a good thing, then, to desire to literally do everything for and with the Lord so that there's not a second or millisecond of separation. Desiring this kind of constant fellowship is necessary so that we'll endure the spiritual training from God and the persecution that comes from Satan against Christ. My second point is I want to give you some examples of how Christ suffers. So if we examine how Jesus reacted to persecution, his attitudes towards it, his words and his reactions, then we can become aware of how we are tempted to fellowship with darkness while we suffer for Christ. So first of all, what, did, what, what Christ didn't say. Peter wrote, when, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, 1 Peter 2.23. The prophet Isaiah wrote, you know, 600 years in advance, this prophecy, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, 
so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53, 7. Now, one summer I, uh, in Bible college, I worked on a small farm, and this farmer had a few sheep to shear, and I got to watch what happens when they are sheared. So they make all kinds of bleeding noises while you're getting them in the room and all that. They're making a lot of racket. But when you get ready to shear them, the farmer forces the sheep to sit down on its rear end like a dog would. And then, uh, then he shears them in that position because for some reason, a sheep cannot make a single noise in that position. And so they remain absolutely silent the whole time the shearing process is going on. And that was just amazing. And I really understood this Bible verse then, that, that Jesus was totally controlled himself from saying anything mean back to those who were persecuting him. The Apostle Paul wrote, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. That's Ephesians 4.29. Now, we fellowship with Christ when we refuse to let unwholesome responses come out of our mouths, responses that would tear people down, insult them, belittle them, or humiliate them. Isaiah wrote about the coming Christ in Isaiah chapter 42, 1 through 4, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter nor or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teachings, the islands will put their hope. Now notice, notice what Jesus does not do. He doesn't yell. He doesn't scream in fits of anger. <laughs> He's very patient, and he doesn't explode in irritability at a bruised reed or a smoldering wick. Now that, what that means is that's a poetic description of wounded people that require Lots of patience. So he maintains kindness and gentleness and patience. By the way, every time someone gets healed in the name of Jesus, that is an act of justice prevailing. Remember it said, uh, the prophecy said, he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. Well, there's so much injustice, but you see, when healing happens in Jesus' name, that's because the devil has no right to inflict people with pains and suffering that Jesus bore on the cross. So when, they're, when the people are loosed from affliction in the name of Jesus, it's actually an act of divine justice as well as divine mercy and love. And we help Jesus bring forth justice on earth when we minister you know, healing and salvation in his name. Now, we need to take a look at who Christ felt sorry for because if we're suffering for Christ but feeling sorry for ourselves, then we're fellowshipping with the devil while we suffer for Christ. So Luke wrote, A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. So he was bearing his cross to Calvary there. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, Weep for yourselves and for your children, for the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they'll say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. 
For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Well, we're nearing the end of the age and the tree is dry. That means uh, people at the end of the age will be meaner, more violent, uh, more hateful than ever. And notice that as Jesus was being led away uh, to be crucified, he felt sorry for Jerusalem and its inhabitants because he knew, and not too many years later, it would be completely destroyed and the Jewish nation would be dispersed across the world with terrible sufferings for nearly 2,000 years. He felt pity for the confused mob calling for his death, and so from the cross he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, God taught me years ago that self-pity is a prince among sins, and that self-pity is a locomotive sin with the power to pull other boxcars of sin down the track into our lives. And God taught me that if I felt myself going into self-pity, my spiritual alarm should go off. I should immediately cry out for God's help. You see, self-pity justifies hurting others back, and it has the power to pull in sins like adultery, murder, suicide, and, and every other sin into people's lives. It's very powerful, and yet most Christians uh, consider it kind of a, a friend or cousin, you know, a, a constant companion. But we want to get rid of it completely. We want to deny ourselves, and that would mean to deny self-pity. Well, we must feel sorry for people who persecute us and not be in self-pity. Because self-pity destroys our fellowship with Christ. Now, a Christ-like attitude is necessary. And Jesus, knowing that he would be martyred, said, And if I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to me. John 12, 32. And he knew that the greatest future glory would come from his sufferings. Now, Jesus had taught other people, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew 5, 10 and 11. Now, notice... Without this attitude, many may fall away from Christ uh, because they would get resentful towards God because of their temporary and temporal suffering. But Paul endured and conquered through much persecution because he fellowshiped with Christ in this important attitude. And he wrote, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all, 2 Corinthians 4.17. So you see the perspective, the attitude of Christ is so important if we're going to continue to fellowship with him in good times and even in great persecution. Now, even in the worst moments of his suffering, Jesus remained focused on others. And the Apostle John wrote, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, this was when he was on the cross. He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciples, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciples took her into it, the disciple took her into his own home. 
And when uh, one of the thieves that was crucified with Jesus said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus responded, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So when we fellowship, when we actually fellowship with Christ in his sufferings, we keep our mind on other people and what we can do to serve and bless them no matter what's going on. Now, the Apostle James was one of the first martyrs of the church. Stephen was killed first, but then came the Apostle James. And Rick Joyner wrote a book called The Apostolic Ministry. Rick is a student of history. And he uh, wrote in this book that the early church father named Clement told details about the martyrdom of the Apostle James. And here's what he wrote. Clement wrote that when James was brought to the tribunal seat, it was the man who was the cause of his trouble who brought him there. While seeing James condemned to suffer death, he was so moved by remorse that he went to James' execution. He confessed Christ himself so that they were led forth together. On the way, he asked James to forgive him for what he had done. James paused and then replied, Peace be to you, brother, and kissed him. And they were beheaded together in 36 AD. Well, you see, James was suffering with Christ, but he was fellowshipping with Christ in those sufferings because he wasn't pitying himself. He was loving other people right during that persecution. Now, my third major point is that counterattacks will come, so we must be on our guard. Now, most of my dreams are wild and crazy dreams, and I don't try to get spiritual uh, meaning out of them. Recently, I was talking with my daughter about dreams, and she said, I remember you told me a dream one time that you were being chased by a Tyrannosaurus Rex dinosaur, and it chased you into a barn, and then you calmed it down by feeding it cat food. Well, we had a good laugh. I didn't remember that dream, but most dreams are just goofy. All right, but recently I had what I would call a spiritual dream because it gave me what I would believe was a warning and instruction from God. Now, in the dream, I was talking to a man who was very pleased with his cannon. And with his cannon, he would shoot it and blow up groups of bad people that were a long way off. And he was rejoicing in what he could do with that cannon and how far it would reach. So in the dream, I told the man that now that he had engaged the enemy like that, a counterattack was bound to happen. And I noticed that his organization had no defense at all. No one was on guard. I told him that every one of his people needed to be armed with an automatic weapon, that sentries should be posted to guard at night, and that he should put up a tripwire around the perimeter of his camp so that if attacks came at night, they would be alerted. And then I woke up. And when I woke up, I felt like I was the man with the cannon. Now, the interpretation of that is I've been very happy to send thousands of copies of my book, 21 Ways to Forgive, out to prisons. And uh, we're blowing up the works of the enemy <laughs> from a long way off. It's just like we're shooting cannonballs into those prisons, blowing up the works of the devil and sending in tracks, thousands and thousands of tracks. We're reprinting the, the one called uh, The True Story of the Rescued Rat. So now we'll have 89,000 
uh, full-color illustrated tracks in print. Well, anyway, so it's, it's like a cannon that we shoot off and, and we destroy the works of the devil from far off. But, you know, I realized I haven't been uh, praying much about my defense. I haven't been posting prayer requests in my newsletters. And uh, so now I'm praying more in the spirit. Um, I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, asking God more to protect us and asking my friends and partners to pray for us. Because the reason is simple. We're doing a lot of damage to the works of the devil. And so a counterattack is certain. Now the Apostle Paul humbly asked for prayer. He said, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for not all have the faith. 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 3. Well, our ministry, we just are, you know, compared to some, our ministry is just little, but it's been doing a lot of damage to the kingdom of Satan because love and spiritual power are manifested in my meetings in these local churches. Uh, the books are helping people all across the nation, and we just started, uh, we call it a TV show, but it's just actually live streaming on the Internet and then on being on different Internet platforms. But I just recorded two broadcasts uh, with the Holy Spirit Broadcasting Network, and we'll be live every Friday morning, West Coast time at uh, 10 o'clock. And then those are going to be put on different platforms and archived. And so anyway, I hope you can enjoy those, uh, those programs. But the point is, uh, we're doing a lot to destroy the works of the devil. I'm writing two new books. I've got several new tracks in my heart to produce. I'm able to do this because of wonderful partners and without partners, I'd have to be in a secular job and not be devoting myself to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So besides, you know, financial things sent to us, we need the prayers of our partners because every advance comes, uh, from every advance comes a counterattack. We'd like you to pray, please pray for our health, our finances, our family, our children, our grandchildren, my protection in travel, and any other kind of protective prayer that you can pray. And dear friends, uh, with your help, I'm going to keep firing the cannon. <laughs> now, Richard Sigmund died and was dead for eight hours while God showed his spirit man visions of heaven and also of hell. And at one point, while he was in the spirit there, he saw huge warrior angels about 12 feet tall. Their shoulders were three feet wide. They were armed for battle, and they were going somewhere. And he said, Lord, where are they going? And Jesus said, they're going into your future because of your prayers. Well, I hope that you'll send a bunch of those warrior angels into our future, and uh, we'll pray for each other. But you can pray for yourself, too. It's a, uh, Whatever you do for God, there will be a counterattack. So remember that. Now, my fourth point is that the Lord is going to release a new glory to the church. I don't claim to be a prophet. I feel like I flow in teaching gifts and uh, evangelistic gifts, like the gift of healing. But I respect legitimate prophetic people. So <clears throat> one of the ladies I've read a lot of is called Annie Scheisler. And uh, she was given so many powerful visions 
that it filled four books. They're all put together now in one big volume called I Saw the Lord. These visions came in the 1970s, not long after her conversion, and she would pray for hours until she was caught up in the Spirit, and then Jesus would show her various things. Now, I've read and reread these visions for years because there's so much in them. And again, the book is called I Saw the Lord. You can do an internet search. It's not easy to get, and it has to be by Annie Scheisler because there are other books by that with the same title. But this is a one by Annie Scheisler. Now, listen to this. She had many visions of certain people becoming just like Jesus. And in the visions, that she was shown that they would suffer a lot of persecution. But in several visions, she was shown that God was going to pour out a glory upon and into his people that had never been done before. Now, I'm going to quote her. She said, As I entered his presence, he showed me something so impressive and frightening that I feared greatly. Although he specifically told me not to fear, even so, I could not feel completely at ease. For in almost unbearable pain and in great love, he tore open, as it were, his own spiritual form or body. Even though he had told me to look at it, I feared and wanted to hide my eyes... For after this great tearing open of himself, I could see within. There I beheld something so terribly perfect in its holiness that even the word perfection seems to sully it in my memory. This living something was very much a part of himself, yet it, seems, it seemed as though he were bringing forth in a tremendous beginning a new being from his own person. For long eons he had waited to manifest this most holy thing which he is about to bring forth. The tremendous radiance, radiant perfection, the holy glory of this beginning that he showed me was so far beyond expression and so filled with holiness and God life that I felt greatly perturbed and trembled even though he told me over and over again not to fear. It was something too high, holy, and perfect to look upon. When he said, the hour has now come, it seemed that he was about to explode, not into an explosion of terrible destructive violence, but rather a pacific explosion. Then he came forth, as it were, in this explosion, and it was tremendously sweet from this sweet, explosive breaking forth. He extended himself over all. That is to say, he desired to manifest himself, pouring forth, pouring this forth upon those of his own ones who were waiting upon him. To me, it seemed so imminent that it appeared to be right now, yet I know that it was not at this moment in our time. Now, she had these visions back in the early 1970s. About 50 years ago, Whenever he broke forth in this manifestation, it began to extend, and the wonderful glory and ineffable sweetness of that perfect thing that he was bringing forth made such an impact upon my being that it greatly troubled me, because I could in no way understand the vision. Well, then a few days later, she had another vision, and she wrote, Today he showed me strange, strong pains and sufferings, that shall accompany the holy thing that he's bringing forth, as it were, out of his own being. 
the tremendous storm of pain and suffering accompany, accompanying this coming manifestation shall break forth simultaneously with it and shall be provoked by that holy new beginning, the manifestation that he is going to bring forth and place in his chosen ones. In this place of great pain, I sense terrible sufferings, martyrdoms, all kinds of persecutions. Although I could not see them, I felt their terrible pain. At the same time, I was held in a place of complete peace, sweetness, and tranquility. The thought occurred to me that it was almost a deceitful thing which he was about to give to his own ones, for although it was so high and holy, nevertheless it would bring forth strong provocations, terrible reactions, and much suffering and persecution. The chosen ones who receive this holy thing from him shall also receive the pain and suffering provoked by it. For that holy thing shall be tremendously shocking to those who are in opposition to God. Now, uh, the transcript of this message, of course, is at the end of our newsletter, and it has all the chapter uh, pages and everything. That, that was called from the book, I Saw the Lord, The Coming Persecution, page 16 of book 4. Now, she relates, The next day while in prayer, the Lord took me again into the same place of pain and suffering. And this time I understood the reason for the strange double reactions. Though the storm that shall break over his own ones shall be terrible as he brings them into this new place of beginnings in him, yet at the same time he shall bring them into a high and glorious peace and security. This high state of peace, tranquility, and security has not yet been given to his own ones, but will be given when these things which he is about to pour out upon them are fulfilled and when he brings forth the full manifestation of that holy thing that he will bring forth into the world through them. At that time, they will know and participate in this sense of security. Now his own ones fear because as yet it has not been given to them to know or understand this high state of security. Later, although great and terrible sufferings come to them, nevertheless, because of this place in God into which they will be enabled to enter, there will be absolutely no fear whatsoever. His own will not fear pain, death, nor persecutions, for they will be held in God and experience this high place in Him in which there's no disturbance of their peace and tranquility or peace of mind. All right, unquote there. Now, as I said previously, these visions were given to Annie Scheisler in the early 1970s, so almost 50 years have passed. I want to read a verse by Paul in, from Romans 8, and he says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. So Paul was writing uh, the glory that shall be revealed in us. Well, we know that more glory is revealed in us in heaven. Uh, and I believe the Lord wants to reveal more glory in us down here on earth than has ever 
as ever happened in the church age. Now, during my first year of Bible college, that was way back in 1968, but I met a lady in Portland, Oregon, who claimed to be a prophetess. And she had a little group of disciples whom she was basically in control of. And uh, they had this great revelation about the sons of God being manifested and that they were going to be the manifested sons of God. <laughs> she told me that the Baptist type of Christians would be the 30-fold and the Pentecostals 60-fold, but they were going to be the 100-fold Christians. So they had an awful lot of spiritual pride over their, quote, quote, revelations. Now, it turned out to be a lot of goofiness. And God delivered me from, from them because they weren't really doing anything spiritual or great or winning any souls. They were just puffing themselves up thinking how spiritual they were, which isn't spirituality at all. So I've always thought that the manifestation of the sons of God that Paul wrote about must be after the resurrection and that doctrinal error came when people considered it to be something pre-resurrection. Now, I'm, I'm just not so sure about all that. I, uh, I don't know how much God's glory is going to pour out on people. But I have been hearing a lot of other prophetic voices talking about this great coming glory that God's going to release. So while I stay on guard for some kind of kooky theology or misrepresentation of Paul's words, you know, I don't know if what Annie saw would be called the manifestation of the sons of God. But whatever God meant by that vision he gave her, that great release of glory and then persecution and supernatural peace, you know, I believe he's going to do what he said. So what I do believe and what I know is that God is going to pour out more glory, more glory from his spirit and thus more intimacy with him on his end-time church than even the early church experienced. And this will result in a rage, revulsion, and hatred equal to Satan's own hatred of God. I hear many people talking and boasting about the coming, of, coming glory that God's going to send and how great it will be. Well, I believe that it is coming soon and that it will be glorious. But I don't hear them talking about the persecution and hatred that will come against it. And when the glory comes and the persecution comes simultaneously, it's going to weed out those who reject the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Now let that sink in. I wrote the word selah in my notes here, which is in Psalms. It means pause and consider that. So I'm going to say it again. I believe this coming glory is going to be absolutely awesome. But when it comes... It's going to provoke an equal hatred and persecution from those who don't want Christ, who are offended by godliness. And so it's going to weed out the Christians. A lot of Christians want the glory, but not the persecution. And we have to take Christ as he is. Now, he's both the glorious, exalted Lord and the suffering Christ. We want to be with him every second, be like him every second and have a fellowship that cannot be broken apart. The bottom line of this, the meaning of it all, is that if we'd like to be a part of a glorious end-time revival, the most glorious ever, we've got the desire to fellowship with Christ at all times. We've got to so love His fellowship that not even the greatest hatred and persecution could break that oneness.
Now, in other words, our fellowship with Christ is going to be tested. And if we value and desire complete union with Christ, this desire will bring our fellowship into something constant. And from there, we'll be brought into a union with Christ that's both glorious and enduring, glorious and unbreakable. It's a burning love for Jesus, the kind of love that Jesus has for the Father, the kind of love the Father has for the Son. Now, my fifth point is that the suffering Christ is also our bridegroom. Anna Roundtree is another lady that's had many glorious trips to heaven in the Spirit and wrote the book, Heaven Awaits the Bride. Now, the, the, these two prophetic ladies that have had all these, I read these books over and over and over and over because I believe they they're genuinely saw the real deal. But in one of her trips to heaven, she was walking towards the tree of life, and I'm going to quote here from her book, quite a, quite a lengthy quote. So she writes, When halfway to the tree, the Lord materialized before my eyes. He stood before me beaten, bruised, his garments stuck to his wounds that were still open, gouges in his skull, swollen fingers and swollen face. I cried out in alarm. I did not know what to do or how to help. I was in shock. I sank to my knees for all the strength left me. My hands covered my face. Anna, he said, this is your husband too. I still bear wounds from the faithless in the world. I could not look at him. It's all right, Anna, he said. It's all right. He took both of my hands into his and helped me to rise. Look at me, Anna, he continued. He had changed and now looked as I usually see him. And he said, I am both what you see and what you saw. You need to know that you are marrying into one, not uh, you're marrying into both, one but both. And she said, I do, I do not know what to say. Uh, she whispered, say nothing, he said. What is there to say? But you need to know me as both so that you do not wed blindly. What does all this mean, I ask? And he said, those who are one share all. You wish to drink deeply, to share fully, to know even as you are known. This too is part of the knowing, the sharing, the being one. There are not many who turn from their own interests to seek the interests of God. But those who are called and chosen to live in God desire to share the sufferings of the Godhead. It was as though I was struck dumb. He continued, I realize that you are in shock, therefore I will not ask you now if you are willing to share my sufferings, my sorrows. Lord, I said, trying to face the reality of what I had seen, make me willing. I want to be one with you. I would deny you nothing, nor would I turn away from you, because there are sorrows to bear as long as we are together. Do you mean this, he asked. Yes, Lord, I said. Behold, he exclaimed, turning to face the tree of life and gesturing, in, and gesturing in its direction. A huge gold ring began to spin before us. It was as tall as the Ferris wheels that are part of the World's Fair exhibitions on earth. It spun rapidly, bursting into flames. 
I realized that the flames were fiery seraphim, hundreds, no, thousands of them. Their flames were as intense as blowtorches. But a uh, figure similar to a man's was at the center of each torch. Each seraph had six wings. With two they covered their eyes, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. A unique and pure music came from their midst. Who will ride the wheel of fire, the seraphim called. Their voices had a strange sound, as if their words were passing through some medium to which we are not accustomed on earth. I realized I would need a greater spiritual maturity than I now possessed if I would desire to share the burdens of God. I did not know what this would mean, but evidently this fire was a first step if I wished such maturity. I turned to Jesus. I want to ride the wheel, my Lord. He smiled. We will ride it together. I called to the seraphim. We will ride Jesus took my right hand and we started forward. The closer we came to the wheel, the hotter grew the flames with which it burned. The sound of thousands of blowtorches was formidable, but through the flames I could hear an adoration of God that was of such purity that it startled my senses. As we arrived at the fiery wheel, a seraph beckoned for us to enter the flames. The seraph spoke to me, Few wish to ride the ring of fire. They want the ring of gold, but not the ring of fire. I looked at Jesus. Then holding tightly to his hand, we both entered the fire. It was extremely hot among these flaming seraphim. A seraph gestured for us to sit down. We did. The wheel began to turn. We went up as if the fiery ring was actually a huge Ferris wheel. Jesus said the seraphim will train you in a holiness that will bring forth pure worship, holiness burning like a torch, intense in its focus. If you will yield to the ministry of these servants, you too will be like a flame and burn like a torch of love and purity for your God. He continued, The fire is for all. Learn to live in the fire by allowing it to burn away all that will not pass through as purely of me. Learn to love the fire of God. As the wheel climbed, it seems as though I could see the entire universe and beyond of beyond. A seraph flew to me with a live coal and placed it on my lips and tongue. The fire burned across my face and down my throat into my heart. The seraph said, let your words be fewer and only those that come from the throne. Jesus said, there is a separation that occurs, Anna. As one draws closer to God, there is a burning away of the dimness over the eyes of the mind and the eyes of the heart. For these, the world loses its luster. The ingen ingeniousness of man, uh, mankind becomes a passing spectacle that only causes the person to turn with a sigh back to God. As the fiery wheel reached its zenith, Jesus began to praise the Father. He was transformed into pure worship before me. It was as though he could not help himself. Once begun, he could only enter in more deeply, express his love more passionately, burn more intensely. The passion of his ardor came from complete understanding. It was love and praise that spring forth from knowledge such that only complete union 
can bring forth. As I watched, he had passed into an ecstasy of love and passion that was incomprehensible to me. The intensity and purity of his expression, his all-consuming zeal for his father was so beyond my understanding that it was wholly other. He burned with a laser white light. By being with him, I was carried further in my own passion and zeal for God. It was though the alabaster vial had been broken for the smell of costly spikenard accompanied this spiraling upward. He became pure, uncreated light. Eventually, the white flame of his ardor for his father subsided, like the intensity of a powerful light being reduced. He became the Lord I could comprehend. Love God, Anna, he said. He has invited you into his heart. Do not treat this as a trivial invitation. End of quote. Now my sixth point. Those who go deepest into God are not specifically chosen. Annie Scheisler was given many visions of what she called the reigning fires. These were believers who were completely transformed into the image of Jesus. And she wrote, quote, The reigning fires became so not because they were specifically chosen to be, but because they had permitted all of his fires to do their work in them. This process had completely transformed them into the reigning fires who will ever reign with him in his cloud, in the highest heavens, and who are exactly like him, unquote. Well, remember what the seraphim asked in Anna Roundtree's vision. Who will ride the ring of fire? In other words, it's, it's open to our choice. Now, my seventh point is my conclusion. I believe that God invites all of his children into his heart. I love the idea of becoming a reigning fire, someone conformed completely to the image of Jesus. And I'm very comforted these people are not specifically chosen. And that means this is open to anyone. Our brains, our strength, our cleverness, our toughness have nothing to do with it. It's just a matter of letting God's fires bring complete purity into our lives. It's really a matter of learning to love the fire of God and live in it. Now what Jesus said to Anna Roundtree and most, most surely applies to all believers Love God. He has invited you into his heart. Do not treat this as a trivial invitation. Now, friend, there's a lot of stuff in this message, and I think it would be good for many of you to hear it again or read it and study it until your heart truly says, Lord, I want your fellowship. And with it, comes glory and with it comes suffering and persecution I want to be so one with you I don't want anything to be able to break it apart let's ride that ring of fire together my friend I love each one of you God bless you if you would like to partner with us at Encouragement Expert please email us at pastorbacker at gmail.com or you can write P.O. Box 485 Cresswell, Oregon 97426